Hello and welcome back to Hyped. It's good to be back after a hiatus largely uh, caused by Tom's backbreaking term. He tells me in addition to all of his teaching, he's been naughtily saying yes to all kinds of extra work. Isn't that right, Tom? Very naughty indeed. I've been in my own kind of self-induced tier three, but well, I've surfaced now. And well, we're glad to have you back. Hyped is a podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music, and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert, and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of France with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and debating culture together ever since we were at university, which I have to say now feels so far away, it's almost a distant planet. Yes, I think um, I was a sort of Elon Musk-created Mars-dwelling alien. <laughs> this week, we're discussing The Queen's Gambit, Netflix's miniseries released in October 2020, based on Walter Tevis's 1983 novel of the same name. It stars Anya Taylor-Joy as Beth Harmon, a beautiful chess prodigy whose genius emerges while she's at an orphanage in 1950s Kentucky, courtesy of the janitor who teaches her to play in the basement. Harmon gets addicted to drugs, beginning with the tranquilizers handed out at the orphanage and progressing to alcohol and more drugs as she grows up. These serve as an emotional crutch as she comes of age in a dysfunctional foster home and, and this is where things are interesting, to help her think about her game. It's an unbelievably glamorous production and had everyone with a Netflix subscription utterly hooked. It became the most streamed miniseries ever. Is that right, Tom? No, I think it's, it's the most streamed scripted miniseries ever, which okay. I know is a lot of qualifiers. <laughs> yeah. But to give, to give a vague sense, I think by the end of November, 62 million Netflix accounts had accessed The Queen's Gambit. And that was, you know, several weeks ago. So actually, it has grown and grown since then. Um, critics have also loved it. Uh, the New Yorker gushed that it was, quite simply, the most satisfying show on television um, and Roger Ebert described it as compelling period drama, a character study and a feast for the eyes. Um, now, I just want to pick up on what you said, Zoe, about Walter Trevis, who I actually think is a really underrated writer. Um, you might know that he also wrote the iconic novel about pool playing uh, called The Hustler, which became that great 60s movie with Paul Newman. Um, and he also wrote The Collar of Money. So he's someone who's actually very interested in the sport genre as well as writing kind of dystopian uh, science fiction as well, strangely enough. Um, and I think here too with chess, we've got another version of a sports drama. Um, it turns out that the team behind it have been sort of pushing to get Trevis's novel turned into a series ever since 1992. Uh, but finally, here we are, uh, nearly 30 years later, it has emerged. And I have to say, I think a lot of its success is to do with the fact that it's been screened during lockdown. I do think this is incredibly kind of escapist television in a way. I don't know if you think that the present moment has helped this kind of infatuation with the show, Zoe. It certainly has. And Tom, not to be too nitpicky, but I just want to clarify, it's Walter Tevis, not Trevis. So if listeners oh, are, are wondering That's at the inconsistency. Um, it is Tevis indeed. Yes, I think, I think it has absolutely uh, been a function of lockdown um, uh, 
kind of conditions. I think really interestingly, everyone's sort of getting used to a life of, of staying in and having to find things to amuse themselves that don't involve going out. And, you know, apart, apart from just the fun of having something to watch on TV, it's actually reignited interest in the game with sales of chess sets kind of shooting up and memberships of chess clubs. I mean, I have a friend who's a 38-year-old woman um, who's a literary PR by day um, who has taken up chess, which she actually learned as a child um, with another girlfriend, and they play online together um, at, at great length over periods of days at a time. Um, and so I think this is now part of the new normal, which is finding new ways to sort of spend time inside. I think the other thing is that there's been a lot about drinking and 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 going up in lockdown mm -hmm. and watching the queen's gambit was a very boozy experience whether you were drinking or not and there was something about almost like feeling like you were out in a sort of steamy um sort of like glamorous dark uh, bar almost just the experience of watching it and i for one and we'll get on to the the way it relates and treats relates to and treats alcohol in a bit but i for one found myself kind of you know, cracking open the beers, the red wine, as I sort of hunkered down and watched this. Uh, so I think it was, there was something about it that really made you want to sit on a sofa, um, be quite cerebral and drink lots of alcohol. Um, so uh, that, that's, that's my take on it. I mean, Tom, would you say that, that it also had a sort of, I don't know, opulence and, and the beauty of it? M might that also have been something that appealed to people in an otherwise quite dreary circumstance? Oh, gosh. I mean, it was so beautiful and you're talking about watching it through a kind of boozy haze I mean it really had a, a kind of exuded glamour um very chic you know we're in an era where people are obsessed with mid-century design and I'm sure there were lots of people kind of drooling over all the kind of 60s interiors and the wallpaper and the kind of you know the modernist chairs and so on and it was very lushly put together um, I would say Anna Taylor-Joy was also completely mesmerizing. I mean, she was an incredibly beautiful Beth. Um, and I remember we'd not been very impressed by her as Emma. Zoe, oh, we hated her. Cinema, and we did not like her as Emma. Uh, and I confess I brought some of that anim animosity with me into the Queen's Gambit. I just find her face... She looks like such a bitch. I'm going to just put it out there. Um, and she was a bitch when she played Emma. And I just can't, I can't get out of my mind. But good for you for being able to move past that. But that sourness that I think ruined her Emma was actually a massive asset here in that mm. she did have this quite, um, she's very poised, she's very prim, but there is something a little bit kind of um, heartless about her. Um, and I thought that as a result, she was kind of perfect for the role. She also actually, she made her break in this great little movie called The Witch. Um, and there is something almost, you know, faintly supernatural about her. She's like a beguiling alien in a way with those kind of huge eyes and this very intense kind of stare. And it, it fitted the kind of oddball kind of character. So I thought a lot of the, the kind of beauty of it was you know, staring at that amazing face. One reviewer describes her as the world's most beautiful hammerhead shark because there is something kind of about, just right. about her anatomy that yeah. was completely compelling. Um, what did you think about the kind of period aesthetic of it, Zoe? It was very loving. Yes, I mean, it, it was so horribly stylish and it was sort of interesting the way history and, and sort of period evocation now has come to be a sort of competitor for actual kind of thematic content. So I think this was a love poem to mid-century chic, as you say. Um, I, I, you know, I didn't like the house in Kentucky, which everyone seems to be mooning over, but it was beautifully <laughs> evoked. You know, even the orphanage sort of seemed glamorous. And I think, I think we, we are in a, we are in a time where people are very interested by the fifties and the sixties. Mad Men. Mad Men, absolutely. Mad but, Men but aesthetic. I mean, 
and even just thinking about historians, like professional historians are, are sort of their big discovery of the last 10 years was that the 1950s is also worth looking at and that it has its own kind of glamour. Um, I, I think, you know, obviously the the way that the Soviet Union was evoked in the end, um, it, it was also it brushed with the glamour brush. And that may sort of that's quite interesting. I mean, do we really want to be beautifying uh, that kind of brutal regime? But I think, you know, you can touch on that in a bit later, the way that this kind of um, aesthetic enveloped um, the Soviet bloc. Um, I wanted to ask or raise, Tom, this business about style and the question of style over substance. And I think, let's not forget, this is hyped. We are taking a critical look at hits. And I think you actually first brought to my attention a kind of emptiness to this show. I mean, you're you've been you've been enthusiastic so far, but you, our first conversation about the Queen's Gambit was your feeling that it was massively overhyped and actually a bit limited. Um, and I just wondered. I mean, don't don't you think that maybe we've entered a bit of a an age of TV being beautiful, but perhaps lacking a little bit of substance, and if not an age of that, although it feels familiar to me, certainly perhaps at play here where there's a bit of a sort of set piece okay gorgeous girl with addiction issues is amazing at chess did, did I mean did you think it was limited in that way I thought it was completely emotionally hollow with maybe one or two exceptions and I think it was almost too easy on the eye like you know Netflix is in danger I think of having so much money to chuck at these series and film them with you know exactly all the right details and these beautiful you know cinematographic kind of um you know, attention to detail. You know, think of The Crown, I think, is in a similar problem at the moment where the interiors are so wonderful and the costumes are so wonderful that it ends up pushing the drama into the background. And with this, I felt like it was, you know, it was a very enjoyable watch. But I came away and thought, you know, what was it for? Like, I struggled to find an idea, even the kind of glimmer of an idea in the heart of it. Um, it's actually deeply conventional and felt more like a kind of feel-good fairy tale. Um, and I read an interesting thing um, recently about the difference between HBO and Netflix. And it was suggesting that HBO sort of tries to sort of show its quality by giving you gritty stories, by giving you kind of, um, you know, sort of warts and all kind of drama. Whereas Netflix is ultimately about kind of period drama that is feel good. And the quality is all in the production details. And this did feel like you said, like you reach for the bottle, run yourself a bath. This did feel like a treat. Um, but it was one that I thought didn't have much kind of intellectual uh, bite to it. Um, and I, I suppose that problem about like how intellectually satisfying was it is related to the issue of chess itself um and to what extent you know this actually is trying to you know help you understand this very cerebral game or whether that too became a little bit flashy well i think it became flashy and i think it's an easy device you know you lure people in who don't really know the game that well make them drool over the spectacle of this gorgeous woman just whooping ass um <laughs> at this sort of quite sort of mathematical game and it's, it's amazingly thrilling and satisfying to watch that but i think uh one criticism i heard was that um chess people who can actually play chess and follow chess uh, couldn't actually follow any of the games that were often in shot i mean much of this is just beautiful pictures of beth playing chess with various men um in various settings um at schools in hotels at various tournaments but there's a lot of you know there's a lot of time camera time spent on on the board and on and on the kind of um move keeping apparatus to the side of the board but actually apparently 
if you wanted to follow the actual games that were being played, it was completely impossible. So I, I think it might be a bit like when you have something about a musician and the actor doesn't mm. actually play the violin, they just do an imitation of it. And it's sort of a bit unsatisfying if you actually know something about music. So I know that chess um, people at the very top of it were involved in consulting and, and there's a sort of positive uh, yeah, feedback from the chess Gary Kasparov was involved um, and there was and, and, and a quite a well-known chess coach was involved but I think I think it's just this beautification I, I actually don't think it's I actually don't think it necessarily substantively engaged or, or gave the, the chess loving viewer a substantive engagement with chess that said I do think it was it was quite unflinching and, and disciplined in the way it showed the way you become an amazing chess player, that just being a child prodigy isn't good enough, that it's not only a kind of collaborative um, uh, affair, but you have to read, you know, it's a mm. texty affair, just the, all these scenes of her reading and reading and reading and learning all of the past games of all of the uh, players and the, the sheer kind of, yeah, the textual element, the notational element, the academic element. I mean, every, she learns at her f first tournament, you have to t make a note of every single move you make in every single game so you can go back and study those games. It's an incredibly closed system. Uh, there's nothing looking outward from it, but it's also very, um, it's, it's, it's a hermeneutics. I don't know. It's very, it's very intellectual as well. And I think showing the amount of reading that goes into it was, was really interesting. Um, I mean, Tom, that, that might kind of, lead us this question this what I mentioned about the collaborative nature I mean what did you make of what did you make of the setup of gender the fact that here we have this girl she's obviously beautiful and she's surrounded by men inevitably how do you think Netflix sort of brought that theme out do you think they fell for the kind of obvious or do you think it was actually perhaps a little bit more interesting on the gendered front I thought it was interesting in that she doesn't ultimately kind of succumb to any of these men. I mean, it was quite brave in the way that it showed a set of conquests by her, you know, both like literally victory in the board, but then also just collecting these kind of hangers on, like some of whom she goes to bed with, some of whom she just sort of strings along. But she has this troop of men who come to love her. Um, and I suppose the, you know, if one was being a little bit skeptical about the story, you know, when we think of chess, it's usually kind of you know guys or mostly guys but sometimes girls on their own in a slightly geeky isolated way whereas through this she gets this massive family and as you say she only wins against Borkov at the end precisely because she can rely on the team who are rooting for her kind of back in the US so it's amazing that these men don't bear grudges it's amazing that these men don't feel jealous of her um and I have read criticism that you know she she's almost like a, a kind of macho fantasy of what a female uh, chess player would be uh, in that there she is looking gorgeous you know boasting about the fact that it's easier to play without an Adam's apple um, but she doesn't really rock the boat she's not really a victim of kind of sexism um, and if anything she's actually able to turn chess to her own kind of erotic advantage um, I was so constantly struck when you were talking about all the hermeneutics of it you know, of her executing this move, the Sicilian, you know, they, they, the way oh, that yeah. almost dance terms are used to describe the chess moves, you know, this kind of, the, the strange sort of seductive embrace of chess. Um, so, so I think uh, there is a clearly an erotic aura around her uh, and the men are all kind of very loyal to her and very devoted to her and they can, you know, and she can get away with treating them like shit. As I say, there is a kind of weird coldness in her ultimately that, um, you know, apart from the relationship with her mother, uh, she just kind of sweeps these guys along with her. She chews them up. She spits them out. She learns through them. 
um, and they don't mind. And it's 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 a weirdly optimistic vision, I think, of how she can she can keep all these kind of men in her thrall. Well, I think the the reason she does, and I don't even think it is about thrall. I think what's so what was actually refreshing about this was that you know all the sort of usual stuff about her being taken advantage of, or exploitation, or sexism, which was a bit of there was a bit of that hints of that at the start, which is all kind of brushed away by the simple fact of her being absolutely brilliant at mm. and obsessed with chess, just like them. And their overriding interest, their number one interest in the world was chess, not women, which meant that the, the, the shared um, co-learning obsession with chess triumphed over the sexual stuff. So in the end, the men worshipped her and loved her partly because she's beautiful, but mostly because they built up this bond through this shared endeavor. And I, I actually don't think she did spit them out. I think she was, um, I think she was, she gave them a chance. I mean, there was the geeky one she agreed to sleep with and she invited him to move in. And, you know, she just wasn't, she just wasn't particularly emotionally bound up in the sex and love aspect of it. And I think we're just not used to seeing the woman not only she wasn't playing a kind of femme fatale, she really was, she really wasn't as interested in rom romance as she was in chess. And that that is the thing that made her a kind of femme fatale, but it's also the thing that brought all those men to her because like her, they were completely obsessed with, with chess. And there's an amazing moment, I love it, when, um, or several moments when she's in these highly sexual situations with these men, um, but maybe it's not coming to anything and they'll say something like, wanna play chess. And in a normal film, or TV series, that would be the moment she sort of rolls her eyes or the audience is supposed to think, God, all they ever think about is chess, how boring. But she says, yes, you know, she can't. And I think it's a, it's a she's always up for playing chess and they, they end up playing chess instead of having sex. You know, chess, chess, chess. And, I, and that's so refreshing. And I think that probably is how it works for things like chess or things like, I don't know, maths and things like piano playing at the highest possible levels. And I think in our culture, you know, we are... You know, we are the we are now at the end of decades and decades of therapy culture, which says no. The most interesting thing is always the self and sexuality, mm -hmm. but actually, this does a fair enough job of showing for some people the most interesting thing is literally the thing that isn't to do with the self and sexuality. That is actually to do with the which Sicilian defense are you going to employ? Um, so, so I. I I think that looking at it in terms of femme fatale or or snared men and stuff actually interestingly didn't quite fit with this. I think I think it was about this the way that the, the love of the game triumphed over all the kind of usual stuff. And that's why the sexism didn't really stick as a theme, because actually she was able to, in a way, transcend it. Just like you could say, I mean, in a way, Thatcher didn't, but in the end, you know, <laughs> let's, get, let's get Maggie in there as a well. Comparison. I mean, if you, if you think of other very successful women in men's worlds, I mean, often, yeah, there is some sexism, but in the end, the shared endeavor wins. So, you know, the fact that the Tories want to win makes Margaret Thatcher win. You know, that becomes more important than the than the woman thing. So, I so I thought that was really interesting. I think where the um where the sex where the sort of sexism theme perhaps more interestingly and subtly comes into it is with the, her foster mother um yeah. who i think is called alma in the production and she um and she is a classic victim of of the sort of well, well to, american yeah. yeah the sort of feminine mystique that betty Friedan writes about the kind of quietly killing herself with with narcotics and and alcohol the horrible husband who abandons her um, and and she she is wasted potential. She plays the piano beautifully. You sort of almost think, well, she could have been a brilliant pianist in the way that thank you know for various hook and by crook, Beth is enabled to become a 
brilliant chess player. So I think that's where you see the real bite of that period sexual politics, the really sad, tragic side of it for women. Beth is able to sort of sidestep it, I think, through her, yeah, through her, through her genius, really. I should say, just as a footnote, though, historically, chess is not an inclusive sport. No. I mean, and that's where some of the fairy tale dimension has kicked in there, in that they, you know, there were various people who watched the show apparently and then Googled who is Beth Harmon based on? And obviously she's not based on anybody female. I mean, she has a male uh, figure who we might talk about in a minute, Bobby Fisher, but she's actually not based on a woman because actually the women were in separate leagues. And actually for most of the 20th century, chess masters have notoriously looked down their noses and said, chess must be hardwired into the male brain. You know, women mm. are somehow naturally incompetent. Um, it's only, and I should say, hooray for her, uh, in 2005, Judith Polgar, um, a Hungarian yeah. chess player has then dazzled and now won the world championships and is seen as maybe the, one of the greatest living players. But and before her, it was very common yeah. to just think women couldn't do it in the same way that, you know, that there are just parts of the male brain that are more mathematical, that are more cerebral mm. and that women will be shut out from. And so we could have had a little bit more of that um, condescension towards her, I think. There's one conversation where somebody says to her, why don't you play bridge mm. rather than do chess in mm. terms of sort of pandering to her, her abilities? Mm. Um, one other thing I'd say just on gender, Zoe, uh, did you, how did you feel about the, there were some slightly contrived characters with the female friend. Um, I did, mm. and this probably is an ungenerous point, but she comes back at the end, you know, the friend that she's gone to the orphanage with and she's known at school and then she sees her again decades later. And this woman is willing to give her her life savings so that Beth can go to Russia. Um, it was moments that I like her that, that made me think this is a fairy tale. Mm. That actually that Beth has an essentially frictionless journey through the world. Yes, she has to study. Yes, she has to work hard. But there are not really many major impediments. People don't resent her. She never pays back the janitor who she borrows the money from in the first place. Like she she is able to kind of, you know, get ahead. And her only you know, real barrier is herself. It's her own kind of demons. Mm. It's her own mm. kind of um, her own kind of psychological problems. And um, do you want to talk a little bit about that, Zoe? I mean, what do you think about her? In terms of as an image of a, you know, a woman at war with herself and the way that it explores themes like addiction, we talked about the pills, but also alcoholism. And I should say Walter Tevis, I'm going to say his name right now, Walter Tevis uh, himself was an alcoholic and alcoholism is a big theme in all the things that he wrote. Mm. Oh, um, what did you make of the booze? Well, I mean, as <laughs> I'm really interested by booze in, in hits TV series because it's, it's such a big character in them. Um, and I think it always goes with women, uh, unless it's a sort of really gritty, like train spotting or something. But, you know, just in the last, I mean, I, I'm always bringing this up, but in the last, whatever, five years, Fleabag, Pure, which is about a woman who has OCD sexual thoughts, I May Destroy You, which we've already talked about and hyped, even the depiction of the young Margaret in the first uh, two series of The Crown with <laughs> Vanessa Kirby. Um, there's this sort of figure of the beautiful female drunk spinning, mm. usually out of control or spinning out of control, it's become a staple. And it almost always is tied up with sexual, um, not, you know, sexual mis mishaps, let's say, um, an, an, an unhealthy relationship to sex. Um, and, and so it's a real female character now. And I do think uh, in this case, this idea that it was her demons. I just didn't feel that we were seeing an exploration of demons. We were seeing mm. someone who had a quite, a, quite an interesting relationship to these drugs and alcohol, which was that she never seemed to look any the worse for them. No. And on the contrary of them ruining her ability to, to kind of do her work, 
the reason she got addicted in the first place was because the tranquilizers and the, the drugs kind of helped her think creatively about chess and she would have these visions and then she would sort of um, get into the right psychological state or if she was worked up and she calmed down, she could think in this kind of the right way to be amazing at chess. So it, it, it wasn't really a straightforward sort of car crash woman thing. The flip side of that is that it was an eroticized picture of the hot mess. And I think that's what I'm driving yeah. at. The hot mess has become such a figure now in all popular culture. And you're exposed to now, I mean, it's really interesting because just as we find out that, you know, the full extent of how bad alcohol is for us and, and apparently numbers of young people drinking is going down at the same time, the glamorization of it, you know, it makes sex in the city with their cosmos look like nothing. I mean, there they were the friends at Se sex in the city, which really did glamorize going out and drinking cocktails with your friends. I don't, generally speaking, they, they, you never saw them get wasted, but what we get now on an almost weekly basis, it feels like is totally paralytically drunk, beautiful women, um, you know, who, who in many cases end up sort of, having epiphanies and and feeling empowered in the case of I may destroy you or Fleabag or well, actually not so much Fleabag but but you know it, it, it's sort of glamorized to an end but um in this case she you know she does eventually break away from it but it, it just hugely it just hugely kind of it, it's this sort of villain in the piece we know it's a villain we know alcohol is bad for people it's especially bad for women links to breast cancer etc cetera, etc cetera. but it was so powerful that I found myself as I mentioned at the beginning drinking much more while watching yeah. this than I would normally. I literally was, I was in Sicily at the time. I was sitting on a sofa in a flat in Ortigia in Syracuse. And I was reaching for like the beers, you know, as she, every time she opened a beer with her mother, I thought, oh, I'm going to open a beer. Every time they have a martini on the airplane, I think, oh, oh yeah. I'd really like to have a martini. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree. And I think she almost, in a way that the, the style kicks in as well, because she looked more and more like a kind of 60s Gene Seberg or even yes. like a sort of twiggy like character as she kind of let rip, you know, as yeah. she as she became more and more disheveled, she became more bohemian and more alluring. And so it also marked the passage from a sort of 50s into a 60s kind of style that yeah. you know, she yeah. became a free spirit. Um, on that, we should we need to uh, we wrap just up. one last thing to come yeah. back to, Zoe, just before we finish. You use the words hot mess. Mm. And I suppose the last thing I'd like to say is the depiction of the Soviet Union in terms of like the ultimate. <laughs> what a hot mess. <laughs> <laughs> the USSR. I'd say it's a cold mess, but yeah. <laughs> it was an interesting kind of rewriting of that Cold War narrative in that, you know, you remember that the Americans and the Soviets had obviously fought each other through chess repeatedly. Mm. Um, and actually this, as I say, is not based on any female chess player, but is vaguely based on Bobby Fischer. Um, and Bobby Fischer had been, you know, ultimately a, a kind of complete oddball, profoundly eccentric kind of maverick character who fought this famous match of the century against Spassky in 1972. And this was a real kind of Cold War moment. Uh, Henry Kissinger was deeply interested in it and involved in it. You know, this is a, this is a big moment of, um, of, you know, the USA versus the USSR and was seen as a victory when Fisher won, a victory for American values. Um, and I thought what was interesting in this is actually the, the refusal of that easy politics. Mm. That, you know, Beth only wins because she also is a team player like the Russians. Yeah. And actually, Russia itself, as you say, was not depicted as this completely grim kind of, uh, you know, a rather kind of desolate kind of place, but actually 
um, you know, very glamorous vision of some of these wonderful halls and these sort of stately rooms. And actually that final scene where she goes out in the street and she is a celebrity for the Russian people. Whereas Bayes, she's back in the US, she's just on Time magazine and, you know, she's being read about in newsstands. But like the ordinary Russian people's desire to play with her, to kind of, you know, respect her. Um, it was a very affectionate portrait of the USSR uh, and one that did feel like it was rewriting history. But it was, I, that's absolutely right. And I just would add just another kind of gender point, which is that we don't really see any, we see, we don't really see any women in the USSR. We see one woman who's not allowed to play because she is a woman. She's a chess champion, but only in the women's league. And for some reason, Beth is allowed to compete with only men um which is actually quite it's something i asked Strange about while i was watching but apparently apparently there were no explicit rules against that but anyway we could see that it was gender segregated in the soviet union but you know in the end you you do get this this funny moment where she chooses you know beth is always around men and, and in the end her final embrace isn't with a romantic lover it's with a whole clutch of ru old russian men who just yeah. want to play chess with her and i think from a sort of gender point of view and from a kind of dramatic point of view that was kind of um, that was touching. I just wanted to finally say what I meant to kind of add before, talking about the the hot mess booze side of things and the kind of tradition that, of that now in, in TV. What I liked about this was that it, it really wasn't to do with sex for her. I mean, when she was drinking, it was a private thing. And what we've come so accustomed to is women drinking, 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 even in the, the series Industry recently, which yep. the first was directed by Lena Dunham um, about bankers also very technical about a woman who's extremely kind of savvy about maths and and stock markets and stuff um but again the, the booze the drugs and the sex all go together but in this case the sex sex is not is just secondary it, it just wasn't part of it so i think that was that was interesting so tom why the hype and not just it's so fantastic but remind us of your of your caveats so i think it's an intellectual void um, I think it's aesthetically <laughs> a total win. Um, I struggle to be moved, I have to say, other than with um, the mother, the, ste the stepmother, the adopted mother, um, Marielle Heller, who is just a, who's actually a brilliant director as well. She directed um, Can You Ever Forgive Me? You know, that Melissa McCarthy movie last yeah. year that I adored. So she's normally a director and I thought she it was a brilliant acting performance from her. So I thought I think everything is done as well as it can be. And I think the production values are wonderful. But I felt it didn't have any kind of intellectual um, kind of substance to it, essentially. It was essentially a kind of feel-good fairy tale, even if I agree with you, Zoe, that it's doing interesting things um, in terms of rewriting the romantic script for a female lead. Um, and it made me think of something almost like, you know, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. It had the mm. same kind of uh, let's do something in the past that actually mm. makes the past shiny mm. and beautiful and that ultimately ends on a sort of optimistic note. So I think it's part of the kind of Netflix feel good a um that we all really needed in the middle of lockdown well but Zoe? i would just say well I, tom i would just say that um marvelous mrs Maisel was actually an amazon production and i uh, think it was and i think it was more substantive i actually think there was a lot more substance to the marvelous mrs Maisel. um i agree and i think what's most interesting is that there's nothing in in the critical response really that that reflects really critically on that hollowness and it does make me think are we at a place now where as long as it looks pretty everyone's happy um, and that's something to think about just on the kind of broader level of, of culture, of the, the, the cultural moment, really, and um, what people want and whether people are actually interested in sort of engaging with with things of more content, perhaps, than style. And I think it's a cautionary tale in that we've just heard that Netflix is doubling its production budget. Um, mm. So they're going to be chucking more money at things coming up. Mm. Um, and I do think there is always a difficult balancing act between kind of 
you know, dressing something wonderfully and actually doing justice to the writing and the and drama. Absolutely. And I think that's appearing across all channels. I mean, I've just been watching um, We Are Who We Are, the, the Luca Guadagnino um, mm. uh, HBO BBC production. And it, again, it's sort of just such a kind of aesthetic piece. But what is it actually doing? I mean, it, it almost has no pretensions to plot or, or, you know, the themes are all very dispersed. So anyway, I think, I think, I think this is something to keep an eye on. So you're um, about to start the next review saying yeah. here's another problem. Well, here's exactly, but I better contain myself. So um, th thank you for... <laughs> <laughs> That's all we have time for now. Join us next time for a discussion of the fourth season of The Crown, or is it the fifth? Fourth. The Crown Season 4. See you next time. <laughs>